Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. Welcome to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Jim McNamara. Our guests this evening are Battalion Chief Jack Pritchard and Captain Tom Gardner. These two individuals have worked in some of the finest companies in the FDNY. Chief Pritchard started his career in 1970 in Squad 4, then into Rescue 2, Rescue 5, Engine 255, and then a chief in the 4-1 Battalion. Not a 157. Okay, we'll add that as well. Captain Gardner uh, started in 255, 157, 111, and then after 9-11, he served at the Rock, then a captain of 113, and then as the plank owner of a brand new squad company here in Staten Island, Squad 8. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. We'll start first with your Navy experience. You both enlisted in the United States Navy, where you served for several years. When and why did you join the Navy? Well, I uh, had just graduated high school, and um, I was home with four sisters. It was the beginning of uh, after school and um, wanting to make the break and try to be on my own. So I decided to join the Navy. That was in 1963. So um, I went to boot camp in uh, Chicago, Great Lakes, and I was sent back to the Brooklyn Navy Yard. So, so much for seeing the world. Uh, so while I was in the Brooklyn Navy Yard, I, I decided to go to uh, one of the Navy schools. Uh, I went to the school, and I thought I was coming back to the Brooklyn Navy Yard. I finally uh, got used to it. And I got sent to Florida, to Cecil Field, to attack Squadron 46, which uh, go on the aircraft carriers. So from that day, when I thought I was going back to the Brooklyn Navy Yard, I wound up on the USS Shangri-La, the USS Intrepid, if you can believe it, it's a museum now, and uh, the USS Saratoga with the Tax Squadron 46. It was an unbelievable uh, experience, especially for an 18-year-old, not used to taking orders and not used to uh, being told what to do. It was invaluable. That was about it, you know, that was, that was my uh, naval experience. And Cap, for you? My experience was uh, at the time, I was the oldest. Uh, I grew up the oldest of nine, and uh, I kind of skated. I wasn't giving my best effort to a lot of the things that I did, and uh, for some reason, I decided that probably uh, one of the things that motivated me was that the GI Bill was changing. It was going to uh, less money for college. It was, it was a big thing. I was going to go to. I was join the Navy, take advantage of the GI Bill go to college, and wherever that took me. Well, I joined the Navy, <laughs> I got the original GI Bill, and never used it. <laughs> I missed the whole reason why. <laughs> oh, I eventually did get a college degree, but it took me another 30 years. That's why, that's why I needed to grow up. I need to grow up and uh, uh, become a man and and uh, joining the Navy, leaving home, I did. Okay. And while both of you were in the Navy, what sorts of things did you do? Well, when I graduated uh, Yeoman A School, I was sent to Attack Squadron 46, and um, I was a seaman. You know, that's probably next to the lowest you can be in the, in the, the Navy. And I relieved an E-6 who was... Uh, a first-class chief petty officer. And 
I couldn't believe that that I had I had the whole bag, you know, as a seaman, and uh, they weren't going to replace that first class uh, for another year. So I was actually in charge of the administrative office for a tax squad in '46, and I mean I couldn't believe that you know I had this whole thing on my shoulders, top secret clearance, and. Uh, sending out the commanding officers paperwork and taking care of uh, 21 officers vacations and uh, flight time and so i grew up real fast you know now uh, you know the, the commanding officer come in and gave me you know the pep talk i know you could do it i got faith in you and i said oh my god i don't know if i'm going to be able to handle this thing but so after a year, uh, it's amazing what you can do when you've handed something that you think is impossible, you find a way to make it work. And uh, when the first class petty officer finally arrived, I was running the show, you know? So I, I got so much experience in, in that year waiting for him to come and made the rest of my uh, three years a walk in the park. So. Terrific. Cap? So my experience, uh, I was a peacetime sailor. So we weren't doing anything of any urgence besides me getting yelled at uh, in the boiler room. There was no urgency to our mission. Uh, so the things that I remember most were the awesome uh the, the places that I went, I traveled, I tell everybody around the world, so bear with me. It wasn't really around the world, but I traveled places that I never would have go uh, gone if I hadn't joined the service. And the awesome natural beauty of the ocean, it, uh, it was awesome. I'll never forget that. And for each of you, what things did you learn about yourself and leadership while in the Navy? Well, I learned that uh, you can do much more than you could ever think you could do when it's, um, when it's put on your shoulders, just like in the fire department. You know, the things you think you could, you could never do, when confronted, you find a way to make it work. I also, you know, I was on two med cruises. Uh, I spent 400 days at sea, and uh, did you get two cans of beer every day? No after beer. 60 days. And I didn't think the water That's was that beautiful right. either, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now the lid's uh, off on ball breaking. Oh, I, I, All right, yeah. I can break your balls now. Yeah. You're going to take all the time, bro. You're telling five-minute stories, and I'm giving them... Uh, you're taking all my time. How did you know there was water? You were down in the hole. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> all right. This is going to get good. Yeah. All right, so you want to know about me? Sure. All right, I learned about the responsibility of leadership. I, uh, I was honorably discharged uh, at a rank of E5, second-class petty officer. And I learned, I, you know, I wasn't uh, in charge of a lot, but I learned that I was responsible for something and I was accountable. You know, that was a big thing. And then you build on accountability, responsibility, that kind of stuff. Terrific. So transitioning now to the FDNY, when and why did you decide to become a fireman? I was working construction uh, after I got out of the Navy. I was a wire lather, and um, I, they put the reinforcing steel and concrete and got laid off just before every holiday and had to work if you didn't, if it, if it was too cold, too hot or whatever, if you took off, you didn't get paid. So what, what I did know was I hated the cold. So I did not want to do that the rest of my life. So I actually, I didn't know too much about the fire department, uh, only that it was a secure job, you get a pension. Uh, so I took all the civil service tests. And I said, 
whoever calls me first, that's where I'm going. And, you know, luckily and thank God, the fire department called me. And I took the, I took the job. And to my amazement, it was the greatest thing I ever did in my life. Amen. Cap? When I got out of the service, I met Al Ronaldson. And uh, for anybody that doesn't know, Al Ronaldson died in the line of duty uh, March 5th, 1991. Uh, he and I uh, met. We hit it off uh, pretty good, uh, pretty quick. We wanted to uh, run the, the inaugural Staten Island Advance run. We were going to run it in 30 minutes, uh, which is pretty significant for guys that aren't track guys. And we trained. We trained. We, uh, we ran probably 50, 60 miles a week. We did hills. We did speed work. We, and the whole time, Al told me about the job. The whole time. Talking about, talking about everything. Everything about the job. And it was all, it was all about responsibility. It was about dedication. It was about... Al Ronaldson used to say, and uh, he used to say, we're New York City firemen. We could do anything. And he believed it. He believed it. We're New York City firemen. We could do anything. So, so that's, uh, nobody else in my family was on the fire department. So that's the reason why I became a New York City fireman, because I heard about it from Al Ronaldson. Terrific man to hear it from. God bless his soul. So transition now to your probie school. What was that like? You didn't have probie school, right? <laughs> <laughs> A probie school was, after going to boot camp in the Navy, probie school was uh, pretty much the same. Uh, we have already learned how to take orders. We already learned responsibility. So uh, being in the armed forces and then going to uh, probie school, um, it it, w it wasn't a big transition, um, you know, and because of the Navy uh, experience, I enjoyed it actually. Um, you know, learned a lot, and, and right from day one, you start that camaraderie. And it's something just like you had in, in the service, you know, dependent on each other. Uh, and learning tradition of the fire department and, and, and what we do and what, we, and what we're gonna do. And that gung-ho uh, spirit they instill in you. Probie school was amazing. And it was my first step towards loving the fire department. How long was your probie school? Uh, two and a half days. <laughs> I told you. <laughs> no, I think it was six weeks uh, at the time. And did you, were you in ladder school in, in 16 truck on, on the east side? No. That wasn't part of that back then? No, no. It was okay. regular school. I'm, I don't go back that far. You know. um, it, it was, it was uh, on... Uh, Welfare Island at the time, you know, uh, it's not as elaborate as as it was as it is right now, but uh, they they taught you the basics. Um, I'm, I think school is, is much higher harder now physically, but uh, all the guys that I I was in they were they were physically fit. They, you know, they all became uh, really good firefighters. So terrific, Cap. Yeah, probie school was pretty much the same thing that Jack said. I was comfortable in that realm. You know, nobody was going to say anything to me, especially after I was, I was indoctrinated by Al Ronaldson. The uh, nobody was going to say anything scary to me. I was really, I was enthusiastic. I was comfortable. I was looking forward to learning uh, everything that I could. You know, and again, man. You know, everything that I uh, heard from Al, it came to life, right? Every day, every day. Walk through the door. <laughs> Walk through the door every day. Come on, brothers! 
that's what I did. <laughs> it's amazing to think of how did that, did that make the needles jump? <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing to think of how Proby School has evolved and changed now. Yeah, I mean now they're up to twenty weeks. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it mirrors the incredible expansion of our responsibilities today that it's accelerated so far. Uh, it also speaks in part to what, you know, these fine young men and women today, when they come on, what they're up against. Yeah, um, transition, I, I, you buy in, you buy in, you got to buy in, you know. Old school is not dead. Old school is not dead. You buy in, you find the hook, you know, you find the hook and you, and you, you buy in. Or you get somebody to buy in. That's that's where we're at now. Mm -hmm. Okay, moving on to the next question. Your initial probie assignments, Chief. You were first assigned to Squad Four in 1970. Can you tell us about that experience? It started off. I I thought I had a hook on a job, so uh, I found out a chief's aide is not that really high up, <laughs> but. Uh, I lived in Flatbush, and uh, he said, I'm going to get you into 309 engine, and they're close to your house. And I said, you know, that's fine. I knew nothing about the fire department. And uh, when I get my assignment, it said Squad 4. And I said, oh, what's, what's Squad 4? Uh, the squad was a manpower unit. You could either use them as uh, an engine or a truck. Uh, not as elaborate as the squads today. You know, we were just manpower. You know, no hazmat, no nothing. We, we were actually, if we got in first uh, as a, an engine, uh, we would be an engine. If we went with two, our sister company was 283. If they got in first, we'd be the truck. So it was on uh, in, uh, in Brownsville, uh, Brooklyn. And... Uh, the first year I'm there, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, this is, you know, this is what all the companies are doing. <laughs> we did eleven thousand runs. <laughs> so uh, in a twenty-four, uh, my busiest night was seventy runs in a twenty-four hour period, with five jobs, and I thought everybody was doing that. Sure. I said, "Wow, this is really crazy, man!" But I'm, I'm loving it. The guys were, they were, they were gung-ho. Um, it was the first time they ever put a probie in the squads. And I thought it was because, you know, that, you know, we were really good and they're going to send us to the squad and that, that had nothing to do with it. They used to dump everybody in the squads at that time. Uh, and they wanted to uh, kind of change the image of the squads and they stopped putting in young blood. So uh, I went with uh, two other firefighters. Six of us went to the f that firehouse, 3-2-283 and 3-2-the-squad. I was there four years, I think, and uh, in that four years, we did you know 40,000 runs and uh, countless amount of fires. So I, I kind of got like 10 years' experience sure. in my first four years. I was ready for the, you know, I had three years on. I thought, you know, that I was going to get drafted by the rescue, but uh, that didn't happen. Can you describe for our listeners, particularly those outside of New York, what was Brownsville, Brooklyn like in 1970? There was a lot of poverty in that neighborhood. And at the time, there was a lot of arson uh, for profit. Um, they were buying uh, dilapidated buildings insuring them to the hilt, and then burning them down for the insurance money. It was what they called the war years. Uh, I would say I was in the 4-4 battalion, and uh, we did 11,000 runs, and you know we thought we were the hot shots. Every company in the battalion were doing 10,000 runs. So it was... Unbelievable. I mean, you could go out at uh, 6 o'clock at night and get 22 runs on the air 
before you came back from your first run. And then they try to relieve some of the companies over there by saying if you could do, if you did 22 runs before midnight, you could go to your relief company. And they thought the companies were going to jump on that. But when they called and find out how many runs they did, everybody did 21 runs. Nobody wanted to go to the relief <laughs> company. So uh, eventually what they did with the squad was they made the squad run for all the engines in the battalion from 6 to midnight to give them a break for the six hours. And then we would come back and do 25 runs from midnight to uh, 9 in the morning. So uh, the squads were manpower, basically. You know, if you came in the truck, the battalion needed uh, an engine, you would go to work as an engine. If they needed a truck, they'd go to work as a truck. No special equipment, you know, just strictly manpower at that time. And who were some of the guys in the squad that you really looked up to? Oh, well, uh, there was a, a fellow named Jack Carney, uh, firefighter. The captain, Purcell, my first captain, uh, was an amazing leader. Bobby Cheeseman, he became the chief in charge of personnel. I looked up to all of them, you know, basically, you know, all the senior firefighters there, they were, they were great firemen. These guys would, you know, work a night tour, do 35 runs, do a side job, come back and do it again. I mean, they were amazing, yeah. you know. Uh, at that time, I was only 25, so uh, staying up all night and going to work the next day was a piece of cake and, and loving it. And thinking in the beginning, when you know, my first few months on the job, I'm saying, holy shit, this city is crazy, man. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking everybody's doing this. But the ironic part of the, um, that I told you that if you did more than 22 runs, uh, you would go to a relief company. 283's relief company was 255. In Brooklyn, that was doing only, you know, 1,500 runs. And 10 years later, they, they were the busiest company on the job. Sure. So, so the, the way the, the work shifts. But the squad was amazing. It, it gave me, you know, it gave me the opportunity to learn to be a fireman really fast and make my career jump much faster than it ever would have. Sure. And then as a firefighter, you were able to get to rescue too? Yeah. Can you talk about that experience? How was that different from, from the squad? Well, the rescue, um, well, I'll tell you why I wanted to go to the rescue first. Every firefighter in an engine company, it's instilled on him, you never give up the line. You know, no matter what happens, you do not give the line to anybody else. So I'm, I was, we had a fire in a cock-off in a school. And, you know, we're moving in pretty good. Everything's working fine. Except the guys are saying, oh, I got to go get a bottle. I got to go get a bottle. Now I'm a, all of a sudden I'm up there all by myself. And I'm saying, whatever happened, we don't give up the line here. You know, guys. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm waiting for them to come back. And I can't advance, and I can't back out because we, you don't back out. You know that's something you learn right away. And I'm waiting for him to come. And all of a sudden, a lieutenant comes up behind me and he says, "Dick Hamilton, rescue two. I'll take it from here, kid." <laughs> I said, "What the fuck?" So I said, "That's enough." Dick Hamilton, Rescue 2, huh? I said, Jack Pritchett, Squad 4, lighten up. <laughs> he said, he turns to his guys and he says, you heard the man. And we put the fire out. That's great. When I went down to the truck, I said, I'm going to Rescue 2. From that, that fire on, I said, these guys are tough, but sure. I want to go there. 
So I, I put it in my head, that's where I'm going to go. And uh, how I got there was, uh, at the time, we were a 30-man company. Well, I, I had gone to see the captain first. And he told me, you know, you got four years. I got guys on the list 15 years. You know, you're going to have to get some more experience, and then you come back. I said, okay. The captain, had, a few months later, we were 30-man company. Captain had to go down to get rid of five guys. We're going to a 25-man company. The captain's name was McMahon. And I say, Cap, I'll take the hit, but can you get me in rescue too? And he said, I'll see what I could do. So I said, okay. Uh, evidently, he had weight with the, the borough commander, and the next thing I know, I'm on the order to go to Rescue 2. So I show up in Rescue 2, and Captain Gallagher was the captain. And I walk in the door, and he looks at it, and he said, I don't know how you got here. And I said, I got lifted. And that didn't go over. He thought I was a real wise guy, you know. So he said, well, you're not going to be here tomorrow. So I go, I go down, and I said, oh, shit, you know. Got to be a wise guy, too. So I go back up, and I, I asked Captain Gallagher if he'd give me six months. And if I couldn't be as good as his guys, you don't have to get rid of me. I'll leave myself. And he said, okay. And he put me in his group, and I worked with him for that six months and the next seven years. So, And he was a very impressive guy himself, wasn't he? He was, guy was amazing. He was the biggest influence for me on the fire department. He was, he was amazing. There was nothing, like Tommy said, there's nothing a fireman can't do. There's nothing that Rescue 2 couldn't do. And he instilled that in every man in the company. When I first got to Rescue 2 and prior to that, Rescue would go and they would do anything that was unusual. You know, they would go there and they would stand fast and wait for something unusual to happen. Well, with Captain Gallagher, you know, you would take uh, guys with a trade and you would come in, you're an electrician and everything. And Captain Gallagher turned the whole company around. He didn't want electricians. He wanted nozzlemen, uh, truckies, he said, you know, the job's fire. I want the best firefighters I can on the job. And then he's the one who started going on 1075s. And he would tell the chiefs, we're here to, for, for something that's very unusual or something happens after the fire starts, and we're here to take care of it. If you put us to work, nothing will be unusual because we'll put the fire out. And Gallagher's uh, concept was, if you put the fire out, the hazard goes away. So he was, he was amazing, an amazing guy. And what made him so good? Well, his attitude, his training. He was the captain of uh, 290, the busiest engine on the job and at the time. 103, the busiest truck at the time. He just felt there was nothing that that company couldn't do. Like Tommy said, uh, you know, the, the fire department feels that way. But it was you were in a rescue, you believed it. You believed that you were the best ever. And any job we ever went to, as bad as it looked, he would always, he would find a way to make it work. And we put the fires out. We, we were actually not, the rescue today has, you know, a thousand tools. We were just firefighters. That's all we did was fight fires. You know, we had the Hearst tool. I mean, I think that was the biggest tool we had, you know, they, and then we go to car accidents, but the trucks had those also. Uh, he put six guys, the difference between a rescue and, and most engines and trucks Engines, trucks all have a, you know, their best firefighter. Uh, rescue 2 
had six best firefighters every time they worked. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, one thing I forgot to ask you, what year did the mask come in? Well, we had the mask in 1970, but they were locked up in a, in a box in, in a compartment. We didn't start, I didn't start using a mask until I got to the rescue. And Captain Gallagher's uh, philosophy was, we'll go to a fire. Even if you're a good firefighter, we've got a six-room apartment, you'll make three rooms without a mask. Captain Gallagher's philosophy is, you've got a mask on, you make six rooms. There's no excuse for not making a fire and not putting it out if you have a mask on. It was tougher to work with a mask with Captain Gallagher than it was to work without one. Because there was no, you have no excuse if you're wearing a mask. And, so and we did. We walked over many guys in the hallway, choking to death, and we had the mask on. We're, we're going in. This guy was right. But there's no backing out with a mask. Sure. Um, okay. Switching to Cap Gardner. Cap, when you come out of probie school, you're assigned to 255. Can you talk about that experience? Yes. Again, uh, Al Ronaldson was in 157. I went to the engine because that was the advice that I got. I was in 255, and I got there because of Chief Tom Fawcett. Chief Tom Fawcett was, uh, I grew up around, he was a St. Teresa guy. He, uh, he was the president of the Emerald Society. He was a battalion chief. He was a... Uh, a gentleman of the highest order, and he liked me. So when I was on the job, excuse me, when I was on the list, the list came out, he said, well, where you, what are you thinking about? And I said, I'd like to go to 255, and, and I was there. And then what was 255 like at that point in time? Uh, 255, like Jack said, we were doing an extraordinary amount of runs because... Uh, the shift in and the work it it engaged more of Flatbush, Midwood, Crown Heights. Like we we started working in those areas. Okay, and and who were some of the guys who broke you in and and that you looked up to? I would say Bernie Mullen was uh, was a significant. Bernie Mullen was he was a fireman in one hundred three. Uh, I'm not sure where he was a lieutenant, but he was a captain of 255 when I got there. He was he was a beast uh, in the same mold as Jack. Uh, he worked with Tom Neary, who was also one of those guys, the Alphas in the New York City Fire Department, and he liked me. So I got a chance to work with him and uh, Jackie Corning, who was a senior man of 255, and he liked me. And he, gave, he used to give me the knob. Whenever he got the knob, he used to give me the knob. And, and I got an opportunity to, to develop as an engine man. And then what was the, the run volume like back then? What was it like? Well, when I, when I got there to uh, 157, I guess we were doing about 3,000 runs. You know, at that time, I got there in uh, 87. Uh, the engine was was probably doing you know three thousand you know around there. They didn't have EMS at the time, right? Uh, but we did have false alarms. You're cutting into my time now. <laughs> but we did have false alarms. <laughs> Come on, man! Oh. About three thousand runs. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Tom. <laughs> So then after that cap, you go across the floor. Yes. Five years, five years later, I went across the floor. What prompted you to make the move? Al Ronaldson. He used to come up and say, hey, the captain's in the office. Go talk to him now. Captain's in the office. Go talk to him now. And then eventually I, I got now. Now that was Al. But Jack was, he came in 1987. Jack got to 157 in 1987. And I'll never forget the first day I met him. First day I met him. 
couple of days before that, uh, Phil Rail, Ginsburg, character of the highest order, comes up to me and he goes, hey, Chaunce, this guy Jack Pritchard's coming to the truck. He's an animal. And I go, wow, that's interesting. Two days later, I come in the kitchen, you know, kitchen's buzzing, jumping, a lot of activity in the kitchen. And I'm saying hello, and there's one guy. He's sitting there like this, eating his bagel, and he's not looking at anybody. He's looking straight ahead. I'm going, wow, who the hell is that guy? We go out for roll call. Guy introduces himself. How you doing, fellas? My name is Jack Pritchett. Whoa. <laughs> now, I want to know everything I can learn about this guy. So I follow him around. And uh, I made him my business. I made him my business to know what he knows. I tried. Uh, I never wanted, never wanted to, to be left behind. I never wanted to miss an opportunity to learn something from Jack Pritchett. So I did what he did. He gave me every opportunity, too. He gave me every opportunity to learn something. And, and what, what I learned with Jack was sitting around a table and discussing operations, discussing his experience, discussing the, the new experience that, that we had just had. Again, because 255 and 157 were developing high-volume uh, operations. Runs to workers, uh, we were up in the top five, if not number one. And, and the guys that started, that were coming in, there were, there, were some, there were some really good guys. But the guys that started coming in because of the developing uh, volume of fire duty were really good. And was it an accepted practice that guys would go from the engine across the floor? Yes. Yes, it was. It was, uh, you know, some guys came in from other companies into the truck. Nobody was coming from probing school into the truck until uh, Quinn. And uh, there, was a, there was an order where a bunch of guys went from probing school. Jimmy Ellison, Mike Quinn, these guys went from probing school into the truck, uh, they missed an opportunity. Uh, one of the things that that I learned uh, later on when I became a tactical instructor uh, at the Rock, one of the things that I learned is how much I didn't know. I didn't know. There's so much that I didn't know about the engine, you know. And I learned that. I watched Mark Merrill teach, you know, teach me about everything. Uh, the, the nuance of, of being a good engine firefighter. I knew the difference between the team, the team effort that goes into stretching, charging, operating, advancing a line, getting to that back wall, the things that Jack was learning in Squad 4 and Rescue 2, we were doing in 255. And we were doing it actually before you know, before this guy came around, he just made everything better. Terrific. Chased a bunch of guys out, too. Well, that happens. Yeah. So as we transition out of the firefighter rank, now would be probably a pretty good time to raise the bunker gear question. Both of you spent an extensive amount of time operating in blue jeans before the transition. Chief, could Squad 4 or Rescue 2 have done the volume of work and runs that they did if they're wearing bunker gear and a 45-minute bottle and a PSS? Well, I, I think they could have. I mean, um, I never really felt the, a difference. I felt more secure with the bunker gear than I did with uh, dungarees and a peacoat. Out of school, you know, the truckies, uh, we wore the rubber, rubber coats. At that time, the truckies would wear uh, canvas coats. Some truckies were wearing pea coats. You wear a pea coat and it gets soaking wet. It it, it, it weighs fifty pounds. So uh, the bunker gear was definitely uh, a big plus. 
I think it made it, it made it better for the firefighters. You know, they didn't take the beating that they did before with the heat and uh, uh, the water getting soaking wet. They, you know, the bunker gear was uh, definitely a, a home run for the fire department. Interesting. And then as an engine captain, right, you, you had an understanding of how guys stretched in blue jeans and then when they stretched in bunker gear with all this stuff. Did you notice a change in stretching speed? No. Uh, I was in an engine company that was the fastest, fastest responding, fastest stretching. 255 is probably the best engine company in the New York City Fire Department, not because I was the captain, uh, but I want to think that it was because I was part of that company. That engine company is... Uh, they go above and beyond the call of duty uh, in the firehouse, outside the firehouse, families. Uh, they take names. Uh, if you don't show up for an affair, uh, you better not work a mutual if a brother needs a mutual. Uh, better not work overtime if a brother needs a mutual. Uh, I would like to think that I was a part of that, but they still do it today, so I probably wasn't that big a part of it. They, uh, the firefighters, for some reason, right, I guess because of the senior men that they have, one of them is here now and kept the fire department going 10 years after I, was, I left the fire department. It, the company is, is still as gung-ho, helpful to other firefighters, uh, and has the best reputation on the job. Excellent. Cap, I'll go to that bunker gear question to you. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll never forget the reason why we got bunker gear. On Watch Street, John Drennan, Chris Seidenberg, and Jimmy Young died in order for us to get it, you know? So sacrifice made, uh, I adapted to it. You know, I know, I think... Uh, I used to say uh, change and our ability to change is a basic survival instinct. And I, you know, I Googled it and thought that I said it. And I said, ah, it's pretty cool, man. And then I found out it was actually Darwin said it. So if you're going to plagiarize somebody, right? Yeah. <laughs> plagiarize Darwin? <laughs> he ain't around. So, so anyway, bunker gear. You know, three men died because they burned to death. This bunker gear comes around. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna figure it out. And and like Jack said, you know, it's you know it's just a, a it's a little getting used to, but you you can tolerate more uh, when you're properly geared up. You know, a recollection, brand new Proby, two fifty five going on a run. I am. Sitting facing forward, two guys sitting facing back. One guy's got his coat out of the window like this, and the other guy is strapped like he's going into the bowels of hell. And I look at this guy that's not dressed, and he goes, it's a pull box. And the other guy, again, he's just looking straight at John LaFamina, Dandy. John LaFamina, I go, all right, I want to be like him. And that's the way... That's the way you learn things, right? It could be, it could be just just the sight of something, or or could, the lesson could be longer. But I said I want to be like him. So wearing your gear properly allows you to get further, allows you to get to the place where you may be needed the most. Okay, so now we'll, we'll transition now to each of you becoming company officers. You were both promoted out of the firefighter rank at about the ten year mark. What were your what was your motivation to get promoted? Well, after ten years being a firefighter and uh, working with different officers, I I felt uh, that I I could be a leader and I maybe I could be uh, a good lieutenant and teach the firefighters what what I have learned. Part of the reason also was uh, Chief Gallagher, uh, Captain Gallagher of the rescue, was getting promoted. Uh, to chief, and um, I said he's leaving. You know, maybe it's time for me to uh, to study 
and move on with my career and instead of being told what to do and uh, maybe I could I could be a leader now I had a firefighter in uh, in my in the rescue who was probably the best student at the time uh, he was unbelievable his name was Bobby Moja and uh, it was only eight months I guess before the test and I said Bobby I said I know you're gonna write a hundred can you tell me what to do just to write a 70 because I only got eight months. So he, he made it, he, he, he broke down a study uh, uh, agenda schedule for me. And he said, if you do this, you won't write a hundred, but you might pass. And it worked, I passed, <laughs> you know, so, uh, and I felt good about myself. I thought maybe I was going to be able to go back to the rescue at the time. Uh, and Gallagher got promoted, so it wasn't a big hardship for me to leave. You know, I got promoted three months after he did. And uh, I was starting my uh, officer career. Terrific. Cap, for you, what was your motivation to get oh, promoted? There's a, there's a number of things, you know. Uh, I was, uh, I had just gotten married. Uh, I had no marketable skill. I wasn't, I wasn't a mechanic uh, like so many of the guys that I work with that were able to, to work on the side. I did not have uh, any of those marketable skills. I, the overhauling was beating the hell out of me. You know, and I said, if I'm gonna stay active, if I'm gonna stay in firehouses like this, then I gotta, I got to do something to adjust the load of the strenuous activity. And it wasn't, it wasn't because I was out of shape. I was in pretty good shape. I just something, you know, once I finished the task at hand, <laughs> I had to take a knee. I did that a bunch of times. I did it Friday. <laughs> but that, that, was, that was what was going, and my peers. That I had a, that there, was, there was more than a handful of peers that had studied and moved on, you know? And I said, you know what, man, I think, I think that sounds like an interesting track. And for each of you, what was the transition like from firefighter to officer? It, it was a rough transition for me because um, I was a, a firefighter in, in two unique companies and I was assigned to the 4th Battalion in, uh, in Manhattan. And I found out very soon, very shortly that they're not rescue two companies and they're not squads. You're a covering guy, they don't trust you, they don't know your credentials. You know, I'm sitting on a rig, I, you know, I wanna go, to, I'm go, I wanna go to the fire, you know, and I'm, they're taking them maybe a little bit slower than I would wanna, them to be and I wasn't able to adapt to the different firehouses right away so I was having a hard time um, you know at going to fires especially when I went to a fire I expected you know just so much more because I came from a company that gave so much more um, so I was having a little a little problem uh, adapting to a new environment, and a lot of times we used to handle things as a firefighter in the kitchen. Yeah. Well, I, I was still trying to handle it that way, and things doesn't work out, you know, when you tell a firefighter, you know, um, I get back to uh, Captain Gallagher. He used to manage, he used to call it management by pain. You do what I tell you or I inflict pain on you. <laughs> so I tried to do that as a lieutenant and it doesn't work. You know, you can't, you can't, there's some things your, your captains teach you yeah. that only he can do, you know. Yeah. So um, it took a while for me to get used to, you know, uh, expecting everybody to be like the company you came from. The good part of it is you can make them become the company you came from if you have the, enough time to, to work with them. You know, we, we, in the rescue, 
we we trained and drilled all the time, all the time. Every fire we went to was a drill. We would be there hours after the fire was over sometimes just going over what should have been done, what we did wrong or what we did right. And I would do that in uh, as a covering lieutenant and they didn't want to, they didn't want to stay at the fire for another hour, you know, so, and I'm trying to say, you know, we could have done this better, we could have done that better, you know, thinking that they, they were that, as interested as I was yeah. in learning. And, uh, but eventually, you know, once you get to them and they get to know you and, and they see how important it is, then they want to do it with you, yeah. you know, so. It's the power of what a, a a real good officer can do. You can lead them to hell and back. Yeah. My guys used to ask me to go out to drill, and I loved it. You know, I mean, to be in a company that first, you know, we're not drilling at all, to they're drilling without you being with them. Yeah. So that's where you want to be. Yeah. Cap? About being a, a transitioning. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to bring up was uh, I was I was in a really unique position uh, having work I'm working with my mentor and he's working with his so I got a chance to see Jack first as a uh, as a boss and then I see Jack as a subordinate and and then to see Chief uh, Gallagher it was it was really cool I don't know if anybody would you know, you're picking that up. But it was really cool to see that whole dynamic. And I benefited greatly from it. Uh, as far as uh, being a, a, a boss, uh, harking back to m my experience in the Navy, accountability, responsibility. I had somebody that asked me where I wanted to go as a new lieutenant. I said, I want to go to the 6th. I want to see what the other side, I want to see what the Bronx is bullshitting about. <laughs> so, uh, so I went away. I went far away. And not that far, though. You know, the six degrees of separation, the fire department is two. You see somebody that knows somebody, it's like everybody knows you. True. So, so I went, I went to the Bronx. And I loved it. I had I had a ball. I went to places. I saw places that that I've only heard about. I've met guys that were thoroughly entrenched in the in the the area, the Bronx. What I learned also covering citywide is each borough has got their own tempo, operating operational tempo. But the biggest thing that I could say to anybody that's thinking about that transition from firefighter to uh, boss is embrace it. You got to embrace it because if you think that you're going to be, you're not a fireman anymore. You're not a fireman anymore. You're a boss. You're responsible, not just for yourself, but you're responsible for the guys that you're riding with. If anybody gets in trouble or if anybody gets hurt, that's on you. You know, that's on you. I never let myself off the hook. If somebody that, that I'm working with gets hurt, that's on me. That's on me. I don't, I'll never let myself off the hook. Excellent. And what advice would you offer to new officers when it comes to initiating and conducting drills? You have to make them interesting and uh, get the firefighters involved. When when I was in the truck in uh, and 255, I would ask one of the firefighters to give the drill. And this way I know that he's going to have to look it up and, uh, you know, to do the drill. And then we would all participate in the drill. Uh, I tried to drill on... Uh, you know, maybe a, a Queen Anne. If we we had a we had maybe had a problem with this Queen Anne, so we'll, we'll drill on this, and I could bring out the shortfalls without zeroing in on anybody. 
you know, what we did right, what we did wrong, how you're supposed to uh, uh, fight that fire. The importance of knowing uh, fire tactics and procedures. You go to a firehouse and they don't always do it the same, you know, the way the book says. And I, I never had a problem with that. But the problem I have is you have to know what the book says. Um, if I go to a fire and you got the roof and you're going to call me and you know say I got the roof, I say, you don't have to call me and tell me you got the roof. You're supposed to have the roof. So what it is, I want to know if you're going to do something that you're not supposed to be doing. If you got the OV and it's coming out of five windows out on the fire escape and you can't go in, you want to you want to fight the fire watching come out the fire escapes. Call your officer. Tell him you're coming in with you. I'm going to come down. I'm going to drop down. I'm going in with the uh, with the officer. The only thing I want to know is if you're not doing your job, call me and tell me what you're doing, because I I know where you're supposed to be, but if you're going to do something different, and then five minutes later give a mayday. And I think you, your job was the OVM. I'm thinking this is where we got to go. I don't expect everybody to do exactly what they're supposed to do because at every fire, you can't do that. But you have to know what you're supposed to do to tell me you're doing something different. You go to a firehouse and they say, we don't do it like that, Lou. We do this. We said, fine, but do you know what you're supposed to do? You're teaching the new guys what you do here. They think that's what they're supposed to do because they didn't read the book. They, their senior man told them that's the way to do it. So they don't know they're doing it different than the book. That's why uh, the drills are so important to tell the guys what you're supposed to be doing because in the event of a, a May Day, we're going to be looking for you where you're supposed to be. Whenever you do something different, uh, most officers, and you know, we we don't expect you to be able to do everything the the way the book says. If you can't get, uh, if you can't make it in uh, the rear because it's coming out of all the all the windows, you're going to wait there until they put the fire out. You got to get back in the fight. Tell your officer. You know, I can't get in. Uh, you know, it's blowing out the windows. The, they're vented. I'm coming down. I'm going to drop down. I'm coming with you. He says, yes. Or he says, wait. You know, whatever you're going to do. But know what you're supposed to do so you can tell your officer that you're doing something different. Excellent. And Cap, for you? Wow. The, what uh, advice would you offer the drilling. Yeah, the drilling. to a new officer? Okay, for a junior officer, uh, I'll, I'll remember sitting in the kitchen, never met guys, these guys before, the phone rings. Uh, it's for me. It's the chief. He's coming down. He wants to watch the drill. So, so I hang up the phone and I say, anybody, uh, you guys been to a fire lately? Guy says, yeah, we went to something over here. I said, you had it? Anybody else was there? And the guy says, yeah. I said, all right, that's what we're going to do. When the chief comes by, we're going to talk about this job. You guys good with that? And and because I was comfortable with that type of discussion around the table. You know, it's one of the things that we used to stay up all night. We used to stay up all night talking about fires. You know, and that discussion developed into, into a... a a tactical challenge. We would go and and mess with the life-saving rope, or we would go and uh, how do we how we remove? This is before that uh, developing a, a package of a removal of a, a, an unconscious firefighter. Everybody was trying to do it on their own. I understand the standardized the, the procedure, but but the fact of the matter is, long before this standard procedure was out, guys were, were struggling with the idea, with the concept, with the challenge of removing a lifeless firefighter, you know? But that all came from the discussion that was had in the kitchen or out at the curb, you know, at, at a fire that we were just operating. And it would continue. 
It would continue. You would take this home. On your way home, you would be thinking about it. You would think about it at home. You would think about it. It would keep you up to, uh, it would keep you awake at night. And the next time you went to work, you say, yo, man, I was thinking about this. What about this? What about this? You know, you put up an idea and you let everybody have their way with it. You invite criticism. Say, well, what do you think about this? And after everybody's had their way with it, it's still standing. There you go. You're going to build on that. You're going to build on that. And you're going to develop the enthusiasm of your peers. You're going you're gonna to develop the enthusiasm of your superiors because they're going to go, these guys are getting better. These guys are getting better because this kid is, is a, a ball of fire. You know, that's, you got, you got to bring it, man. I was just talking about this. I was just talking. I just can't stop. That's okay. You can, you can go as long as you want. <laughs> no, he can. Expanding on this question, right? What advice do you give a young officer when you're, when you're critiquing a drill and you're critiquing a mistake? How do you handle that? Well, we all make mistakes, and, uh, and the firefighters know that. Uh, it depends on what kind of mistake you made. We go back to the firehouse. You know, we never place blame on uh, if he made a mistake, it maybe it was because we didn't teach it right or maybe because we didn't go over it the way we really should have gone over it. We never point out to one particular guy. You just go back and go over the drill and just say, you know, what we did here, what we could have done better. Um, Not confrontational, right? You don't want yeah. to be confrontational. Right. So, uh, you know, you did this. Or you maybe, maybe we could have done it this way. You know, don't point a guy out and, and embarrass him uh, in front of the other guys. You know, if you had something that you wanted to say to him in private, you know, maybe you could you could take him on the side and not embarrass him in front of the rest of the guys. Uh, maybe make that guy do the drill next time. Uh, this way he reads it and he knows what he's supposed to do and we're not, we're not pointing out just out to, to one guy. Uh, most fires can be... Uh, they fought different ways at different times, and there's not, there's not always one right way to, to, to fight a fire. Uh, it depends on the crew, how many guys you got, the manpower. Um, the variables are huge. There's so right. many. Right. right? Yeah. So uh, if, if we make a mistake, we'll just go over it when we get back in the firehouse, or we'll go over it right then and there. What could have been done different? What, how we could have done it different, and what caused it? And, when, and maybe there was a reason for, 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 you know, doing it the wrong way. And you thought it was a mistake. Maybe it wasn't. Mistake yeah. is a relative term, right? Somebody that doesn't bring their gear and thinks that they made a mistake—that's horseshit. That's a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know, you talk about it, and and the guy that made the mistake. What's his attitude like? You know, that that's a big thing. If you want to bring up, you want to bring up a shortcoming or uh, or uh, a judgment, an error in judgment. You know, how do you how do you process that as the uh, the offender? You know, that's a big thing, man. And and uh, you know, you you can't let something pass. You can't let an opportunity pass to teach or learn something. Sure, and it's great to to hear what the chief had to say. And especially compared to what we've learned from the psychologists, right? That we don't want to fix blame. We want it to be a learning opportunity. That we look at process, not just the outcome. And again, Jason and I say this over and over again. The more that we learn from the psychologists and the spec op guys, the more it reflects back on you guys in an even more positive light. Like the great ones knew these things intuitively. Right, you didn't have the advantages we do now with the people we're associated with, but it just goes back to show, like John Calamari says, right? This is why we praise the the fire gods. Wonderful, and we we'll take five, Jay. We we'll take five. Outstanding. Outstanding. 
We hope you enjoyed part one of our Leadership Under Fire virtual fireside chat series featuring FDNY Battalion Chief Jack Pritchard and FDNY Captain Tom Gardner. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss part two. If you enjoy the show, please rate us, share it, and leave a review. If you're interested in Leadership Under Fire events and publications, please visit leadershipunderfire.com and join our newsletters. Thank you for listening. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit Leadership